Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Wanted to do something different. I had the idea over the last few weeks, I was thinking about guests and wanted to talk to Derek Bodner of the Daily Six newsletter about Joel Embiid and the Sixers, the great season he's having, and also wanted to talk to Adam Maris of DNVR about Jokic, the Nuggets, and, and his season, and decided it would be fun to have them on together. And so we talk about what makes these two unbelievable players great, and as is often the case with both of them individually and then what was really fun together is where the NBA is going from here, what we're excited about for the playoffs and moving forward. And so conversation goes in a lot of different directions that I think I think it's phenomenal and runs a little bit over an hour brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS five zero code to get a 50% welcome bonus and tell them that you came from us. But without any further ado, here's the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'll walk people through a little bit of how this happened. I had thought about, you know, when I'm building out a guest roster for Real GM Radio, I, I thought about having each of you on, and I know that Derek and, and Adam know each other, and that you guys are intelligent analysts, and you guys watch watch everybody, and so I thought, instead of talking about, oh man, this awesome season Joel Embiid is having, and this awesome season Nicole Jokic is having, each of which deserves plenty of attention— Let's talk about both of them. And I, I thought the place to start, and we can, I guess we could start with Derek here, is just, we'll start with Joel Embiid. What what do you think in this league full of special players, what do you think makes Embiid unique? What makes him special? Yeah, well, I mean, it is, and I think these two are so fascinating because of the way they've sort of broken um, our stereotypes of what you need from big men in the modern NBA. You know, Joel Embiid came into the league, barely looked like he knew how to walk sometimes, but he was potentially the most dominant defense player in the league. And to watch him expand to the point where he is also as gifted of an individual scorer as there is, to watch him be a low post threat in a league that had mostly abandoned the low post, and then to slowly over the years add in elements of, you know, Jordan and Kobe and Olajuwon to his game and actually provide reasonable facsimiles of those moves, it has been pretty incredible to watch. Uh, and I do have a little bit of a predisposition for players who can dominate on both ends. And I don't think Joel Embiid's defense is what it was earlier in his career, in part because he's become a 35% usage guy. And when you start doing that, uh, especially this year with Embiid, um, not having Ben Simmons on, the, on the, the team really all year, having that empty max slot, which I know is something we can talk about with the Nuggets as well. But he had such a heavy burden to carry in the first two-thirds of the season to keep the Sixers afloat, to keep them to the point where James Harden would even want to come and join the team, to keep them in the playoff hunt uh, and the hunt for a top-four seed. 
to be able to do that on both ends, it's just been it's it's fun to watch and it's watch him slowly pick apart because he was a player even two or three years ago. He could put up monster offensive numbers, but there were pretty serious holes in his offensive game from his um, shot selection to his passing to his recognition of double teams to his turnovers. And just watch him slowly pick those apart has been fun to watch. Fun to watch. Am I supposed to speak here on Jokic's Jokic sort of? You can do, <laughs> or you can do Embiid, whatever, wherever you want to go. Um, yeah, I mean, just to kind of talk about Jokic's season, the, the craziest thing I can say about it is that they're they are going to hit the over on their preseason over under, and that assumed Jamal Murray's return in March and Michael Porter for the whole season. It's the, it's one of the crazier things to think about that they had a line set assuming two of their key players would play at least a portion of it, and they really didn't play any of it. Of course, Porter getting hurt in the preseason, he played a couple games, but um shot like 20% from the field couldn't grab a rebound couldn't couldn't like touch his toes um so yeah it's just pretty he's been pretty incredible i think he's significantly even by his own his own words he feels he's better than he was last year um and it's just been really really fun to watch uh him expand his game the thing that's different about him this year obviously much has been made of his defense he's leading i think he's top five in the nba in total steals this season um his defense has really improved but i think the thing that's interesting about him this year relative to previous seasons is he's gotten better at other aspects of offense Meaning he's been a great like you know dribble handoff and pick and roll player. He's been a great po- post scorer, offensive rebounder, all that. But they're using him now like coming off of pin downs and like yeah. on the move and and like these weird. They're almost running him like Clay Thompson sometimes or something like off of all these screens and he'll catch the ball and then attack and. It's just weird to watch him out of necessity because so much attention has been on him. It's been fun to watch him add this new style of getting open and scoring that that we just didn't see that much of before. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Jokic running off of pin downs. And I just remember back like three or four years ago when they started running uh, and beat off of Iverson cuts. And I'm like, you're running right. a seven <laughs> two, three hundred pound guy off of Iverson cuts. What is going on yeah. here? I have no concept of what a big man is anymore. Uh, and, and that really dovetails into our conversation today. Right. And I think that a through line of what you both just said that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle is the player development story here. And that Embiid was a very, he, he was an, like largely undiscovered until, you know, until let's say a little bit before he ended up at Kansas, a couple years before that. But this prodigiously talented player, I remember when I watched film on him, I thought this guy was going to be amazing. And then Jokic, he was far enough down on the board that I didn't get to watch him until he was in the NBA. But like you could tell some of it early on. And then what I what I love about this, and I, I remember I used to like, my mom's a school teacher and I would talk with the kids every once in a while, they'd ask about my job and they're like, what's something that people might not know? And I'm like, how hard these really good players work after they're already really good. And the idea that Embiid and Jokic have been dominant forces in the league, they've been MVP candidates previously, one of them has already won one, and yet they are still developing, still finding, not only finding new ways to be dominant, but patching weaknesses in their game and really improving in some of the areas that were deficiencies earlier in their career. And that is fantastic. That is so, it's so enthralling because that is what makes great players even greater. Yeah, people actually don't realize this about Jokic. I think it's an un- an underreported thing, but <laughs> all media members will know this. He takes about one hour after the buzzer, final buzzer, to come to the podium, and that's because he has to work out after every game. He does this like in- in- intense workout, and I. Matt Ryan, he actually he's a two way player that actually just got picked up by the Boston Celtics, a, a shooter. He was on the Nuggets summer league roster, and he was telling a story. Uh, I actually tweeted out he was responding to something I had put out there where he said he's the hardest worker 
Yoke's the hardest worker he's ever seen, and it blew him away because he never knew that about him. And he said when he got here in the summer, he's just trying to make a two-way roster, trying to make the G League. So he's working hard, and he says he'd show up to the gym. Jokic is there before him. They do all the drills. Jokic is the first one to every drill, like this or that. And he just quietly makes sure that he works harder than everybody else in every workout. And he said, and he just says one of those things nobody talks about or, or knows. But to your point, and this happened, I think two or th- it wasn't like day one for him. He's always been a hard worker, but it was like season going season three. If you remember, he came back real heavy one year, and there was the photo of him, and I think everybody was kind of like, man, this guy was a up-and-comer, you know, all-star, whatever. We thought he – and he came back heavy, and I think it was the last time where he realized, like, I have a chance to actually be something special here. I can't waste this. And from that moment on, he's been in phenomenal shape. I think he's one of the best-conditioned athletes in all of the NBA, and he just works really hard and gets better at his craft every year. So that is – and I, I know Embiid has similar things, but for, for Jokic, it is an unreported thing that he is a, a pretty obsessive worker. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'll, I'll speak a little more to Embiid just because that's a guy I'm more familiar with. But, I mean, this is a guy who's who's having the lowest turnover rate of his career, the highest assist percentage of his career by a large large margin. Um, and he's doing that with no real, like, he played most of the season where, like, George Niang and Danny Green were, like, real integral parts of their offense. Like, he, there was real no shot creation. Um, no one really there to help him with the shot creation outside of a second-year player in Tyrese Maxey. Uh, so to watch these two players, who were already MVP candidates, uh, the two best players in the world last year, to both improve upon that already high base, it does come down to a lot of work. Um, and Embiid had a lot of these same conditioning concerns, criticisms uh, in the first part of his career. But now you look up and he's outside of the stint he missed with COVID. He's playing every night. Um, and it's really tough to hold a pandemic against someone. Other than that, he's been a, a day in, day out player who's been playing big minutes every night and producing pretty much every night. Uh, he is certainly in the best shape of his career as well. Um, and the skill development, uh, the, the you know, getting in better shape that doesn't really come by accident for sure. When you brought up, Derek, you brought up the turnovers and something else that has struck me with Embiid over the last couple of years is fouls. I mean, that was something he uh, Embiid was always better at that than somebody like a young big like, let's say, Jaron Jackson, who I remember like, I'm like, oh, if he doesn't stop committing fouls, he's not even going to play or Mitchell Robinson. He was always better than that. But that is toned down. And some of it, I think, is really interesting. Derek got into an idea that earlier on that I wanted to get into, which is the idea that players we talk about Nate and I talk about it a lot with guards where the larger an offensive workload you take on the more it is understood that you're going to be weaker defensively that that you it's just you can't burn that candle at both ends forever especially over the course of an 82 game season with back-to-backs and and everything else and yet we have seen Jokic take major strides defensively and we have seen Embiid stay impactful I agree with Derek that he's not that the same quite level that he was before and I I will admit, I hadn't really thought about that as a center thing. Just as we're bending these positional definitions, these are centers with offensive workloads at the level of anyone else in the league, if not higher. You know, they're maybe not, maybe like Trey is a little bit ridiculous. But other than that, and they also have to be either the central or a central part of their defensive success. It really is tiring. I mean, that thing you're talking about, I think, is is, is actually pretty underrated, just how much of the workload uh, those guys have to carry. And with Yoke, it really is every possession. This is one of the things that they miss the most about Jamal Murray is it's nice to have a guy that you can just say, hey, this is your possession. Let me kind of I'll set the screen and I'll pop. But that's it. I'm going to take a little playoff here because I'm exhausted. And Yoke just doesn't get those. I mean, he does it every single time. So you're right. And then in pick and roll, we know every team, their game plan is to try to put him in as many pick and roll. I mean, they want to wear 
him out. They want to not even just to like try to attack the weak, the, you know, the weakness or whatever, but to, to to just hey, make him guard, make him jump out here, make him jump out to the left side, to the right side, and he just does it. This is why I, I think he's one of. And Chauncey Billups said this earlier in the season. I think Jokic is probably top five in the NBA in conditioning, just because he knows he has to basically sprint on both ends of the court for the entire game. Yeah, I mean, look, Embiid's workload defensively is 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 massive. I mean, you look up some games and he was playing with Tyrese Maxey and Seth Curry and George Niang and like there's just Furkan Korkmaz and you're like, wow, how is how is this team even remotely competitive defensively? And look, his defense might not have been what it was a couple of years ago, uh, but it's still good enough and consistent enough um, and versatile enough where night in, night out, they're competitive with him uh, defensively on the court. Um, so yeah, he's he's tremendous amount of workload on both ends of the court. Uh, it certainly does. His offensive usage impacts that a little bit, but to keep that up as consistently as he as he has i mean it's one of the reasons why he is a he is a very legitimate mvp candidate it's because he's impacting the game at times dominating the game on both ends the kind of one of the strongest arguments and it's so funny that they that Embiid and Jokic share this is like i, I guess one way i would put it is degree of difficulty slash workload and Adam brought this up so well in kind of the opening the opening we were discussing is both of these players have had to shoulder a burden that that was unexpectedly large due to absences. Those absences were very different, but in terms of what these stars were asked to do, there were actually some real parallels between the two. And what makes me really happy about it is I have always been open to the idea that you can provide a lot of value, not that this is an MVP discussion, but that you can really help your team, even if the team is not one of the best in the league, you know, that if you take a 25 win team and make them a 41 team, that matters, even if you're not in the championship picture. But what I really appreciate, and Derek brought this up in terms of being good enough that James Harden was going to consider coming there, is the idea that these players have taken more flawed supporting cast than we expected them to wield over the course of the season. And I think that's important too, to some extent for both these players mentally and just physically to become relevant teams and to be in the mix for top seeding, to be in that mix. And that like, that isn't a requirement for any of this, but I think it, it makes me feel better about it and it makes it a more impressive lift. To me, this is the most interesting thing. Like, it's funny how much the MVP conversation has swallowed up NBA discourse. The one thing that that I think comes out of it is people actually thinking about how basketball works and maybe what value means. Here's what Jokic's best attribute is as a basketball player. He is a great two-man game player with almost any player. And that's what I think you're seeing this year is – you don't have Jamal Murray. You don't have Michael Porter. Yoke figured out a way to run two-man game with Monte Morris at an even higher level, with, with Will Barton at an even higher level. Aaron Gordon, they have these plays that they run with him and these actions that they run, and they're also different. And Jokic, is, what, what makes him unique is he can sort of seamlessly go from, let me run something with Barton over here. He's got this skill set, so I'm going to try to get him running downhill. Didn't work. All right, I'm going to run two-man game with Bones Highland. He's got a different skill set. Let me do something over here to try to get him open. And just the way he can bounce from one action to the next, knowing it's this guy, I'm going to try to get this thing going. The defense is guarding this way, I'm going to try to get him this thing. And that's what's so impressive about him. And I think it gets, it's not that it gets undervalued. I think we're finally like coming around to this realization of one-on-one basketball is really important. But two-on-two basketball is also almost equally as important because most actions are, can you break your guy off the off the dribble or, or one-on-one? Or can you run some type of pick and roll handoff action or uh, or what have you to get everybody else open? And and Jokic just he really excels at that. You see it this year by the fact that they've plugged in so many different guys in, and they're going to end up having the same record that Vegas expected them to have with all their guys. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's just absurd. I've never seen anything like him. Uh, you look at their on off, uh, they they drop like something like twelve or thirteen points per one hundred uh, when he goes to the bench. Uh, their offense does. It's Derek, just absurd. It, oh, the, yeah, oh yeah. If it's offense only, it's um, per quitting the glass as we're recording this. It's eleven point three, and yeah. overall eighteen point four points per hundred possessions so, difference with Jokic on and off. Some of this is unfair because there was like a two month stretch where Denver, not in addition to being regular shorthanded, they had the COVID protocols, what right. have you. Yep. So there was this one stretch, like a two month stretch in the middle of the season, December, maybe it was like November. December, where that bench was so bad, it it was it, it weighs it down. Like sure. Jokic was good, but the bench was so laughably bad that right. it was made all of these numbers kind of silly. That, sure. that, that's sure. fair, and that's why for me, I like to when when like I mean, I think that the on off is has has merit, but I think that it's sometimes I like to focus more on the on rather than for, the off sure. because it's like okay, well, how, how good are you actually? Def- well, def- especially with someone like like these guys, like you look at Giannis who plays and Jokic too, who plays almost all the minutes. Um, the off ratings are going to be so small sample size that there definitely can be some noise, especially if you run into a couple weeks stretch where you're missing half your team, which uh, in in the 2020, 2021, 2022 era of NBA basketball happens uh, way more than it used <laughs> so to. True. That's part of this year is also why this thing is so weird. It's because like I, I see all these stats out there that are like Dallas has a winning record against all the top four teams in the in the West, and you think. Let's go back and look at these. Oh, they yeah. played the Warriors without Steph, Draymond, Clay. Okay, they played the Suns without Chris Paul or Booker. Like, you go back and actually look at this, and you think those things do matter a little bit. But you also have to look at them because this year was so weird that if you caught, I think the Nuggets played the Mavericks three times in two weeks, and if that two week stretch just happened to be the part where Denver was missing their guys, does that really actually mean something? And this year, more than any other year, the, it, it, if you caught the team at the right moment. Uh, it works. Plus, I don't know if you guys have noticed the schedule this year was so weird. Denver played both Dallas and Utah all of their time. So three times versus Dallas, four times versus Utah, all before like January 30th. And I don't know why that happens. Like that's not usually a division game. You spread those out. So you get kind of an early, mid, mid, late season sample size against each other. And it was weird this year that there were so many home and away back to backs. Like you'd play a team on the road, then you'd come home and play them at home. And I just, I feel like I've never seen it to this degree before. So well, I, I have to, to your I, point, oh, go the ahead. Sixers played Miami um, three times, I think on back to backs. And yeah. in none of the four games did both Jimmy Butler and Joel Embiid play. So there's certainly you can take far less from this in terms of both team matchups for the playoffs and a little bit in the on off numbers. Um, it is noisier than than ever for sure. So I, I have a little bit on that. Um, I've I've wanted to do more digging, but obviously, like all of us, our my bandwidth during the season is a little bit limited. From what I understand, the league wanted to minimize travel. That was something that was an organizational thing, and one of the ways to minimize travel is to have teams close to each other and play in a more frequent band, and then you can do like right. the thing that they do with road trips. I personally, and this is also a fierce argument that I have for reducing the number of games in the season is I think that competitive balance is extremely important too. And what I mean by that is teams should not play opponents too close together because what happens is then a small, a a temporary injury. So like a two week ankle sprain makes a disproportionate difference. And the other reason why, and this is one that we're recording this in late March, early April, that becomes increasingly relevant now is that when you play a team in certain teams, especially hello, Portland, when you play them in April and March, and when you play them in November, December, it's a completely different story. And if part of the goal, you're never going to have it perfect. And and I agree with the idea that it's just like, in many ways, it's like officiating where you have to, you have to play 
the refs on the court, you have to deal with them or an umpire strike zone if we're going to make a baseball and now a baseball connection. But I think that the league owes it to the teams to make that more even because it makes such a difference. And I mean, you could never have expected the context to matter. I mean, I guess you could have before this season, but like to the degree that it has this year because of these absences and the protocol specifically, like, okay, this guy's just now out for two weeks. That sort of thing is is so important. And I understand the motivation, especially with some of the uh, stuff that was coming from the Players Association and from the media and from fans about like how, how much... How much extra these people are doing but it's like it's worth considering what you're sacrificing to make that happen definitely definitely uh i think for interconference i don't care like if Denver plays boston twice in three weeks it doesn't matter like that that, it's an interconference thing if it's the same conference it mattered like denver dallas and it but especially if it's the same division this thing applies to because and to your point derek denver has a similar thing with utah three out of the four games denver was on a back-to-back when they played utah right now if you look at the standings they have the same record the division title is going to come down to that head-to-head matchup and Denver played three out of the four of those on the second night of a back-to-back Utah zero now it's a little thing every team has one of these you know where they had the advantage against their opponent and sometimes it's a division but it is weird that this entire seating and and maybe even the play-in or not play-in will come down to a weird schedule quirk that I've just never seen before yep something else that I find fascinating about the Jokic and Bede conversation is that these players are both building over time as as all young guys are and I mean this is Embiid's age 27 season, Jokic's age 26 season. They have many bright years ahead. They're still building their playoff resumes. And this is not a part of the regular season MVP, which again, we're not emphasizing as much in this podcast. And I'm excited to see what Jokic and Embiid, we're going to see both of them in the playoffs. So fingers crossed that they stay healthy, but like we're going to see them and what kind of growth? I mean, Jokic had this unbelievable postseason in 2020 as the Nuggets made the conference finals and got closer to the NBA finals against the eventual champion with everything else. And Embiid, you know, we had that crazy on-off split in the year that they faced the Raptors and the Raptors won the title. And so the chance to bolster that reputation also find some real success, but also the weight of expectations that was partially fueled by them carrying these teams to better records than we anticipated, that will balance out with this as well. Yeah, I mean, Embiid, he's sort of lucked out a little bit in that Ben Simmons was so glaring in some of these matchups. You know, a couple years back against Boston, he was so bad. A couple years against uh, Toronto, he struggled so much offensively. And obviously last year, uh, everyone knows what happens to Simmons in the playoffs against the Hawks. You know, but Embiid shot, like you talked about that uh, series against the Raptors where he had the crazy on-off numbers, and Embiid was phenomenal defensively and kept them competitive defensively. He shot 37% in that series against uh, Toronto. Now, he was battling some knee injuries. He was under the weather for a couple of those games. He had a massive load defensively to carry. Um, There's some reasons for that, but he certainly has not had the signature moment um, that you would want for a player of his stature. And I think he recognized that. I think he wants that. I think he wants to get out of the second round, obviously. Um, But so far, the Sixers have not been able to do that. Uh, There is a lot of pressure on both of them. Not quite as much pressure. You know, I think someone like Doc Rivers obviously has more pressure. Coach almost always does. Um, You know, James Harden has a ton of pressure just because he has not gotten all the way himself. Um, But Embiid has quite a bit of pressure, too. And I think he wants to change that narrative. Uh, I don't think all of the struggles have been 
his fault, you know, but last two games against Atlanta last year, he had eight turnovers in game six and seven. Like, I think he has had his moments where he has struggled. I think part of that is because as a big man, especially as a post scorer, I do think it becomes a little bit tougher in the postseason. And I do think the fact that he just hasn't had a guard who can space the floor or create off the dribble. There's, again, reasons. But now that he has that, I'm very curious to see how he responds. Yeah, I'm curious for the 76ers this year. I mean, the Nuggets, this is where the two teams become divergent, is the Nuggets are just not that interesting this year, sadly. I mean, they don't have their guys. I think every, everybody knows for them their, their ceiling kind of feels like a second round. You'll see if you get Jamal Murray and Porter back, and those guys act somehow miraculously look like Paul George did in his return. Um, but most likely scenario is that they're just going to run out of out of horses at some point in this playoff run. But the 76ers do, I think, actually have a weird amount of pressure on them. And it's funny because James Harden, I think, you know, is going to be there for a while. So you, you you can come back next year and build around those two now a little bit better around the margins. But I look at them and I think, yeah, Doc Rivers obviously has a lot of pressure on him. There, I think he will be the first scapegoat if they were to under, underperform in the playoffs, regardless of what happens. And then James Harden has a weird amount of pressure on him right now just because of his sort of career arc over the last two and a half seasons. And because I don't know how you feel about this, Derek, and even Danny, some guys age very gracefully, gracefully, yeah. and some guys do not. And I look at it and be, or I look at, at, at Harden, and I just, I'm not sure which one he is going to be. He's so talented. He's so skilled, but there are these just little notes you pick up on of like, Hmm, not quite as good at that thing that made him what he was. I mean, he's still great, but not quite there. And maybe that's just because he lacks some motivation and Brooklyn was so weird and he's going to have a great off season and come back and be even better. But I look at him and I go, there's at least a chance that we're on the decline a little bit, the marginal decline of James Harden. And so this year becomes a little bit more, the, the title window is more open for the 76ers right now and maybe less open in the years to come. Um, whereas Denver, it's more open in the years to come and less open right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, the Harden question is fascinating. I agree with you. I think the upside of the Embiid-Harden pairing is probably greater next year when Maury has a chance to shuffle the roster a little bit. And when James Harden has a chance to come back, you know, have an offseason where he's fully rehabilitating that hamstring, he still just does not look 100% to me physically. There are times where he struggles to get by defenders that I've seen him blow by very easily in the past. And I'm not talking like five years in the past. I'm talking last year before the hamstring. Right, right. I do think that's hurting him a little bit, but it starts to become, you know, you have a player who hasn't necessarily taken the best care of his body over his career, who has been struggling with a soft tissue injury now for a year and who's now 32 going on 33. How much can you really expect him to get back to where he was before the injury? And how much does that then mix in with expected decline just from aging? Um, the next contract for him is going to be terrifying. I don't care how this season <laughs> ends. It's going to be downright terrifying. Uh, it's going to be bad. I just don't know if it's going to be bad in year one or year two right. or year three. Uh, but it will turn very bad very quickly. I think what's sort of, it's it's weird. When the Sixers made the trade for Harden, I said, eh, they've probably got about a 10% chance of winning a championship. Like, it's probably not as high as Sixers fans want. It's not, it's definitely higher than it was before. I think I'd probably drop that down to like maybe a 7% chance, but it's somewhere in the same ballpark. But the reasons why I think are a little different. Originally, I thought, well, it's just, it's too much to integrate. Uh, it's going to take some time for them to get on the same page, especially because Joel Embiid has never been a high usage pick and roll big man. It's going to take some time to form that chemistry. Uh, but when they do look out, well, now it's like, I dropped the odds of winning a championship in part because Harden just doesn't look the same athletically as he previously did. But it's the chemistry of Embiid and Harden that's sort of bringing that back up a little bit back to 
sort of like the baseline. You know, the Embiid Harden pick and roll so far has been dynamic. And I think at times when you see James Harden struggle, it's when he's playing without Embiid mm-hmm. and asked to try to be the ISO James. And his ISO numbers are still terrific, but the, the eye test can tells me I'm not sure that holds up against playoff competition. But that Embiid Harden pick and roll, I don't expect any team to really have a good answer for that in the playoffs. I think that's what they're going to lean on. And I think that's why they still have even a remote chance of exceeding expectations in the playoffs. Um, so that's a long-winded way, and I'm not even sure where I started with that question. But yeah, I mean, look, there's when you start projecting out two or three years with Embiid and Harden, there's reasons to be optimistic. But that aging that you're talking about with Harden, it is, yeah, it's, it's terrifying, especially because you can't, you know, if you've got this hypothesis that um, Harden right now is being held back by his hamstring and he might b- bounce back. Well, if he doesn't opt into the final year of his contract and you have to either sign him in the summer or extend him in the summer, you have to commit a lot of money before you're able to test that hypothesis. And that is going to be uh, terrifying. Yeah, I think one other thing, though, here, Danny, is and this is actually something that was pointed out on a previous pod I did with you, Danny, is that this is the first time in 50 seasons that the NBA has had a different NBA champion four years in a row. We might be, and now some of this is muddied because LeBron won two of those just on different teams, but some of this is muddied, I, I, some of this might be revealing that we are in a new era of the NBA, and I actually honestly believe this. There's a reason we have three MVP candidates this year that, in my opinion, are all very close. Giannis has kind of, I, I think, been been under the radar, but I don't think he should be. I think he's unfairly been under the radar. Wholeheartedly and maybe, agree, and that's a big and, part and maybe, of why this isn't an MVP conversation, is that if it right. were, I would have I would have somebody from the Bucks as well. But forget about it as an MVP conversation. It's it just points to the fact that there's a lot of good players and there's a lot of good teams and maybe fewer great teams than we've had in the past. I think Phoenix is a great team, but I think that in years past, we've had like a juggernaut in each conference and maybe one budding juggernaut, you know, contending to get in there right now. I think there's so many good teams. And if we go to next, like, forget this year, we talk about next year. Are the Clippers a, f- a favorite? Is Brooklyn a favorite? Is Golden State back to what they kind of showed flashes of being this year? Um, Denver obviously gets their horses back. Like, I just think we're in this era right now where I would be surprised if we got a three-peat over the next, like, three, four, five years. I think we're more likely to have these different winners, and that just shows you that the margin for error and the op- and, and the window of opportunity might close for some of these teams faster. And maybe that's Denver. Maybe that's uh, Fe- uh, Philadelphia. Maybe that's all of these teams. It's just that – and that's why when you talk about the windows will be better next year, part of me just thinks, like, there's an opportunity this year for every all of these teams to just kind of get hot and figure out who they are at the right time. And uh, I, I don't know. I just – I feel like there's a real opportunity that shouldn't go wasted for some of these teams. And to your point about there being um, no dominant team or no dynasty, um, I would like to personally thank LeBron James for being such a bad GM to open up a window <laughs> for everyone else. Well, and, and I, I think that the so – it's, it's another part of this story. I mean, you could, you could also bring up everything that happened in Brooklyn – and, and the injuries and in, in for the Clippers, that there are teams that we thought of as having that conceptual ceiling that aren't going to realize it this year. That's the fact of life in the NBA. I mean, that's just the, the way things are. Even even if the league went to a shorter season like I've advocated, they that would still be the case. It's just, you know, people get hurt. And basketball is a sport where individuals matter so much. That's a part of why this con- concept of a podcast can work is because these players impact their team, how they play, how they succeed how they potentially fail so much and so when they're unavailable when they're not right it, it matters and yes support and support players are a part of this story too but they're getting there and and i think that that's part of what makes the nba adam brought up the like kind of the parody is that another element of this and derek brought this up with the lakers is that some of those elite compilations just haven't worked quite as well whether that's on the court or off the court 
and it could be both. Right. You know, like bringing in Russell Westbrook that didn't that didn't help the Lakers, but we never really you know the Zach Lowe's point about the greatest theoretical team of all time. Like we we, we didn't get to see those Nets teams. We haven't gotten to see. Well, I guess we did get to see the Clippers and they lost to the Nuggets. So there's that. Um, but it's. I'm very, I'm very interested in that possibility, but I firmly agree with Adam, and I don't think this is where you were going with it, but as the, well, I mean, we're, we all have some connection to the CBA here, but like, as the largest CBA nerd in this conversation, that I don't see that big earthquake coming in the next year. Like, that's my, right. my instinct is that players are where they are. A lot of them have chosen their homes. And I think that's always such an important part of this, whether we're talking guys like LeBron and Kawhi and everybody else, and also just functionally, a lot of them are under contract. And I th- I, well, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think part of this, though, Danny, is that there's just too many good players. Sure. I think I think six, seven years ago, you put a super a big three together with Bosh and Wade and 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 LeBron. And it's like, man, how how could anybody beat that? And I think you look at it now and you go. There's going to be four or five teams that have a big three of some kind. Even if we don't call, we don't even call these big threes anymore because it's just like every team has really good players. I think there's been a sneaky influx of players that the 50th best player in the NBA right now is really good. And that just means that it's harder to create, even if you are just forming super teams, which again, I think might actually be a little out out of fashion. Like I, sure. I, I'm also curious if, if some players are starting to not want to go that route because of the whole pro- high profile disasters. But it doesn't matter because there's so many different teams that are very close to having their own net organic big three or or we added one piece to our big two and now we have a big three there's just so many good players and good teams out there and i think that'll continue for the next at least four or five years yeah and i mean part of part of the the biggest super team we've had recently is just completely something you can't even remotely replicate like you can't have that kind of draft history that golden state had not only with their top picks but you know later on the lottery and then also have that big cba spike like that's just never going to happen again and it's opened up the door yeah it has And, and also i think you have players making decisions that they either that they want to stay where they are like Giannis. i mean Giannis. The, the success that the Bucks had, of course, is fantastic, and that they were in, firmly in the mix and then won the championship is fantastic. And it doesn't take many of those decisions breaking differently for it to to go. Like, I mean, if Kawhi Leonard stays in Toronto, I don't think they're a super team, but I think they're a damn good team that could have won a championship if he stayed remotely healthy either of the next couple of years. And those individual decisions matter a lot. And part of what makes me so excited about this Sixers team this year, and yeah, I agree it's a work in progress. And I agree that uh, Daryl Morey having an offseason to say, okay, this is our foundation. What makes sense with this? And in many ways, more importantly, what doesn't make sense with this? To work with that is good. Is that we're going to have to wait a year for Jokic, and hopefully it's the case in, in 23, but this is the best individual teammate that Joel Embiid has ever played with, and while we can talk a lot about the flaws of James Harden as a basketball player, and and they and I agree with the idea that the window in terms of duration of years is probably shorter in terms of winning a championship, being relevant, sure, that's plenty long, but really good players often figure it out, and I think we've seen some of that, as, as Derek brought up earlier, in the chemistry between those two, and whether it's two years or three years or just one year to have that opportunity sort of like we have with the Nets incidentally the last little bit to see those players figure it out to see them work through it and to see them do it against high level opposition which is coming really soon is exciting yeah I mean to your point like two years ago Joel Embiid's best perimeter shot creator 
was Shake Milton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not going to win in the playoff. Last right. year, their best perimeter shot creator was a rookie, Tyrese Maxey. And as much as I love Tyrese Maxey, he was a part-time player before he, Doc Rivers pretty much had to play him to save the Hawks series. Um, so yeah, this is a completely different environment that Joel Embiid is in than he's ever been, uh, and it will be a uh, it'll be exciting to watch. I think it's also a tougher Eastern maybe than, than oh, it has 100%. been too. That's what's yeah. so funny about it. Always works out this way, doesn't it? Like when you you kind of get your best uh, chance when everybody else's best chance arrives. Plenty more with Derek and Adam, but first a message from BetOnline.ag. After months of playing, college basketball has determined the top teams for the Final Four and will determine this year's national champion this coming week. Looking to wager on these games? Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. BetOnline remains your number one spot for all your updated odds and information along with player props and great contests throughout the year. Your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so join today. Learn why everyone is saying BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all the popular sports and games. BetOnline, where the game starts. The East are going to be crazy. I mean, there is a chance. I'm looking at the standings here, and they're just as, uh, even for Philadelphia, there's a chance they have a really tough first round series. I actually think one tough series for them, and I think for every team that has a great big, is Toronto. I don't know if you watched Toronto this year. They're, and this kind of plays into the point we were talking about how there's so many great players, this or that. There's also so many different play styles. The MVP conversation is also a facsimile for this because Giannis, Jokic, and Bede, they're all bigs, but they're all completely different, almost no crossover. Toronto, if you've just paid attention, somehow they really fluster teams that like to get the ball to their big man, in large part because they have a bunch of guys that are six foot ten with all these giant wingspans. It just makes it so much harder, so much easier to double and so much easier to recover from a double. Um, And Toronto, while I think Philadelphia is a better team, Toronto just presents a very unique puzzle that even if Philadelphia solves it, it's a puzzle. It's like an answer to an equation that doesn't translate to any other series. They're their own problem to solve, and it just makes them unique. No, I mean, Danny Danny mentioned that if Kawhi had stayed, they could have been a, a you know perennial contender. Yeah. I am convinced that as long as, as Nick Nurse and Masai are there, they, <laughs> they're a contender in my eyes because sure. every time the Sixers play them, they are just a pest. Um, and to your point, you know, Joel Embiid had a scoreless game against uh, the Raptors. Raptors, uh, I think it was two years ago, maybe last year, getting which one. Um, they trouble him, even though they shouldn't, even though he should have a lot of individual mismatches. Their scheme frustrate him to this day more than pretty much any other team. I, I mean, that's, that, the, that's the beauty of the Raptors is yet. it doesn't matter if you have an individual mismatch. You're never def- right. you're never playing one on one. Like you're never yeah. you're getting that. And like they the amount of turnovers they force, the amount of quality looks they prevent. And yeah, they're giving up corner threes. They're giving up some other stuff. It's the, I, I was thinking about what Adam said, and I think it's the, the amount of star players, but I think one of the other elements of this, there, there are kind of two that run together, one that is more in my world and one that is in all of our shared world. One is, I believe the league, not, not universally, but generally, the teams are better run right now than they have been for a while. And then the yeah. other part, which I do, I think is harder to argue against, is that this is a very well-coached league right now. And that, like, yeah. I was thinking about this, Nate and I are preparing our words and thinking about Coach of the Year, but it's not only, like, Coach of the Year, like, who's done a really good job, who's had a hard spot, but the median value and the, like, 20th best coach in the league right now for me like right. those yeah. those are really high and what that leads to is teams like i mean nick nurse is one of the best coaches in the league figuring out well okay we're our, we don't we can't do what these teams do what can we do 
I think of Minnesota as another fantastic example yes. of this. And Finch is what, a great coach, by the way. Oh I mean, man, he, he's a really good coach. Yes, he is, and and also the understanding of well, what well, what can we do to make a difference? Where where does this all fit in? And not not missing the low hanging fruit. Now there, I will I will harp against specific coach, and not every not every great coach is perfect at everything. Not every bad coach is bad at everything. Just like defense or anything else, but raising the floor, broadly speaking, for coaches in the league has made a lot of things more compelling and I think part of that is the playoff picture but I think another part of it is that like yeah there are bottom couple teams in the league but you're you're gonna get something like there's gonna be a theory of the case for almost everybody now yeah I mean to your point I used to have a saying where like you would say there are five coaches that really make an outsized difference at right. the top five five yeah. coaches that really hold you back and then everyone else in the middle I, there's not five coaches that really hold you back anymore not like there used to be um, and we're gonna talk or not were but like we in the media will probably talk a lot about the head coaches this is is you're not you're not at like NFL levels of scouting, but this is a much better oh, scouted this. league than it was 10, yeah. 15 years ago by a, a long shot. What do they say? This is a copycat league. I think the league might be so diverse now in style and philosophy that it's almost impossible to be a copycat. I mean, you I talked to like I do a show with George Carl and you talk about in the offseason, you'd look at some of the trends and this or that. There's so many random trends right now that I don't know yeah. if any coach could process like, all right, I got to look at Toronto and all the weird things they're doing with rebounding and, and transition defense. And I got to look at Boston and look at their weird, wacky new defensive scheme. And I got to look at there's just so many things to look at that you're it's almost and, and this is I would call this the house it going effect. Because if we remember back when Phil Jackson, maybe the greatest coach ever, mocked the Warriors for their jump shooting style of play. How's that going for you? That was like the first. And then obviously it going the exact opposite way Phil Jackson expected and then becoming a dynasty. It almost freed everybody to say, you know what? Maybe you can win with a jump shooting team. Maybe you can win with this different style. And you can draw really straight lines from that to then Jokic. And it's like maybe we play our center as our point guard. And you go to all these. Maybe we play small here, big here. and. Now, I think every team has thrown out the rule books, the principles that have lasted in the NBA for 50 years and are starting to say, I don't know, what pieces do we have and what weird things can we try that might actually turn out to be new principles going forward? Along those lines, I've been thinking of this over the last little while as also being, you could think of it as a supply-demand problem, where when the Warriors were facing the Rockets for those years in the Western Conference Finals, and they were the, the, the clearest consistent threat kind of with what kind of after the Cavs, especially once Kyrie left, that... It was like, oh, we're we're going to go to switching and we're going to do all these things. And that that's just where we are now. And a couple of different things happen to make that less likely. So one of them is there just aren't that many human beings that can do that stuff well and be good enough at everything else that you would ask them to do that you can form a functional team. And that is, to me, the most interesting question about the Miami Heat is that the <clears> Miami Heat have that personnel to not only do a switching system, but to do pretty much anything else they want to do. Like Spo goes to zone principles and everything else. But right. the individual... Individuals that are capable of doing that, generally speaking, the ones that are so good at offense aren't available. And that's why Kevin Durant jumped into the Warriors. Bodner talked about the the confluence of events that led to that happening. And so that's that's one element of it. And then the other element of it is so like there just aren't that many that exist and that you get into these weaknesses is that the idea that you can that that isn't the only way to succeed. That isn't the only way to def, to, to play offense, to play defense really well. And if you have like the other part of it that I've thought about is like if you have going back to the Warriors, if you have Steph Curry, Kevin Durant and Draymond Green on 
on your team, you could succeed a lot of different ways, not just the way the Warriors did. Right, 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 right. I think, though, to your point about switching, one of the things that's happened, and again, this comes back to the, how the MVP is sort of a, um, a facsimile for the greater story that's being told in the NBA. Part of why switching is going is becoming less effective is it's so hard to switch against Embiid. It's so hard to switch yeah. against Jokic. It's so hard to switch against Giannis, and it's so hard another guy who's not in the MVP top three, but Luka, same thing. Like You're not going to switch your your six foot two guard onto Luca because you're just cooked. Same thing with Jokic and this or that. And so this is again like the NBA just keeps evolving. I, I, it's not just that it's evolving; it's that it's almost evolving quicker year by year. Now there's new things that are learned, and so every team just has to be quick, has to be on, uh, has to adjust, it has to be smart, um, and and all these different philosophies mix in such a uh, that make for interesting matchups. One way of putting that, I think a lot about, I mean, when I did some history for, for the book I wrote um, on kind of like where the NBA used to be, and you think about that, it was something where only like Red Auerbach and a few other people back then were like actually knew what was going on and then everybody else was just kind of messing around and that's how he got all these draft picks and built a dynasty and you know all the stories about him trying to get like he was thinking far enough ahead that he tried to get will chamberlain to go to a school in the boston area so that they could draft him in the territorial draft and everything else like that we have moved in professionalization and i love that derek brought up scouting in all of these different facets and basketball is an extremely competitive sport it is a sport where star players matter but everything else matters too and I think the reason it's evolving faster is because there is a lot more competence and a lot more mental energy and, to an extent, more money going into these different elements. And teams also understand, and I think the play-in feeds into this too, that the margin between being kind of good and being pretty good and being very good but maybe not elite, those margins are actually narrower, especially when we're talking about the regular season. And, like, you could think about the Chicago Bulls as an example of this. Like, I mean, great, part of it for me is I was just wrong. I thought their defense was going to be worse. I didn't think... I didn't think everything was going to fit the way that it does. But like Chicago did something that at the time I hated, which was buy now moves for a team that I didn't think was going to be good enough. And yeah, they're falling a little bit and they're going to probably be like a five, six, seven seed. But it's a reminder that even as good as these best teams are, that you can work your way into different parts of the conversation. And that plus the play in has motivated teams to like the baseline competitiveness is higher than I think it was before. It is amazing. I, I And this is just going back to when, you know, since I've been covering the league in the last decade, but I came from a tech background, um, a computer science background. And I remember like just walking up and being like, how do you only have two analytics staff members? Like yeah. I've, I've been on companies that develop just garbage websites and we have 50, 100 web developers. Like how do you only <laughs> employ two people to get a competitive edge that could help you win a championship and to watch those departments explode over the last couple of years? Coach, coaching staffs, scouting staffs, nice. they employ way more people. Yeah. Uh, it's not just getting competent people. Oh, that's that's very big. Um, it's also just there's there's more resources, more manpower, more um, more more money being spent uh, to 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 gain edge. I think you're 100 percent right. We no longer view it as just get the best players and figure it out. Like there's a lot more effort being put into everything about uh, professional basketball right now. I love that you brought up the Bulls, though, Danny, because to me, I, again, like we just talked about the Raptors and how they're inventing some new things. The Bulls taught an important lesson this year to the NBA, in my opinion, even though they trailed off. 
and that is their rim protection through pick and roll defensive guards. They have found a way, and yes. tilled, they lost this because of the injuries. But before this, they had this great defense, not because they had a great rim protector, but because they had these guys that you couldn't screen, and they stopped the ball out on the on the perimeter. And it's, I think, one of these lessons that everybody is kind of learning this year is, hey, perimeter defense is actually becoming as important as rim protection in today's NBA, where stopping the point of attack or at least slowing it is so important. There's so many good players. It's not just the spread. One guy rolls, one guy attacks. There's so many good players that you've got to be able to keep the ball out of the paint as long as you can. And they were elite at it. Three guys that were elite at it in Caruso, Lonzo Ball, but also also Ayudasumu, who I did not understand that pick when they made it. I thought this is a weird pick for Chicago. Then you watch it play and you watch their philosophy and you go, that's really interesting. They've got three guys that just sort of X out pick and rolls. I love that. And also it coming on the heels of a to what I consider a misunderstood but extremely important series in the arc of this, which was the Utah Jazz against the LA Clippers, where yeah. the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard had to succeed in a different way. And Utah having basically no perimeter defenders, sorry, Bryce O'Neill, on their entire team made it so that there were all of these different competitive advantages. And what Rudy, and when they spaced the four at the five or tried to, and Terrence Mann hitting every three imaginable also helped out with that. And so you have that jazz team where the idea was like i i framed it as a heliocentric defense where it's like okay you're going to be dominant offensively with rudy gobert because you're able to select for offense at every other position and then you have the bulls which they're they're doing kind of like a you could think of it as a different part of it where they have offensive stars and then they have these defensive players and their idea is that yeah we don't have a great guy to clean up the messes we're just going to have no messes and Mm. it is a really really fascinating idea i i'm hopeful but also very i'm very skeptical this year that we're going to get to see it in the playoffs just because i don't think lonzo is going to be available and that sucks but the idea kind of going back of there are a lot of different ways to succeed in and a lot of different ways to fail if we're being honest in the league right now yeah i mean to your point uh my fear with the sixers and their playoff chances this year is that that sound that description of the utah jazz sounds a lot like the sixers um where (laughs) yeah like i said um james harden tyrese maxey you know George Niang, like there's, they went very heavy on the offensive side of the court. Um, and as great of a defender as Joel Embiid is, and as much as he can keep them afloat and ab- above ground on defense, um, they don't have much margin for error offensively because they're never going to be a great defense because they've gone so far in the other direction to surround him with uh, offensive players. Uh, we will see. The, that's why the NBA is funny because I do think that this is the era of versatility. Like, what is the old fable? I think so, but the fox and the hedgehog, or where it's it was better for the fox to be clever and know how to solve problems than it was for the hedgehog to be really good at going into a ball. And I think this is the truth for the NBA right now. If you're really, really good at one thing, in years past, maybe that was good enough. Like, hey, man, they're so good at this, nobody can stop them doing that. But I think the NBA might have gotten to a place You can still be good enough at something that if if you're that dominant at Brooklyn, maybe as a test case to this, they're very good at at isolation offense. So maybe that'll be enough to get them over the hump. But I think more than anything now, if you can't do something, you're going to get to a playoffs where some team is eventually going to force you to do that. And the 76ers are better than the Utah Jazz at the thing that they're good at. So I think it's a little not fair, quite fair to compare them there. Utah just wasn't good enough, in my opinion. And and Rudy Gobert, as great as he is as an offensive player, he's not quite versatile enough at this or that. And if they run into teams like the Clippers, like they have for the last couple of years, they run into them that force them to do something else. They end up looking kind of bad. So... 
Well, they and, definitely fall off. And Adam, that ties in with part of why I love the NBA and why, you know, whenever somebody brings up the greatness of March Madness and everything else, it's like, no, if you want to choose a champion and you have these high level players four best of seven series is a fantastic way because what you're going to do is you're going to face high level opposition that succeeds in different ways. And yeah, yeah you're going to injuries and all of these other things are going to impact who the champion is. But you know, organizationally, if your goal is to win a championship, you are going to get stress tested by talented teams of different archetypes. And sometimes it's just survive in advance. Sometimes it is that undeniability. Do the one thing you do well enough to win four and maybe you get your butt kicked in three of them. Like it can be a lot of different things. And we focus a lot on the, you know, like I, I like to think of it now, the Suns are a good example of this, the Bucks too, of the, the healthiest team in the mix is the one that wins the championship. But the thought exercise working through all this stuff is still really important because you can run into a team that does certain things, but what I, that, that just create problems. And what I think is so fascinating and part of what makes this great is you can't solve every problem. Like you're not going to run into, unless we have three top 10 players on the same team and they're additive rather than something else, you're not going to be able to do that. And so you do the best you can, you figure out how to how to maximize your advantages, how to minimize your disadvantages, and work from there. Um, this is why I think Denver, <laughs> it's funny and it's tough on Yoke because I, I actually think Jokic is going to be wind up being the MVP. I mean, there's still time for that to change, but I would not be surprised if they win and lose pretty badly in the first round of the playoffs. And a lot of this has to do with Denver is very solvable until they get Jamal Murray back. They're really good at certain things, but teams have even learned this. Denver can shoot, and obviously they can do all these things through Jokic. What they can't do is if you run them off the three-point line, they can't get to the rim. They can't punish you for overplaying their kickout game. So you just run and jump at the three-point line and like take away that and then dare them to go to the basket four on three, and they just can't do it. I mean, Monte Morris is not a dynamic get-to-the-rim-and-finish-with-you-know-great-great-touch. Aaron Gordon's not that guy. Jeff Green, I mean, come on. Will Barton has lost a lot. So teams have learned double and triple team Jokic, run them off the line when they kick out and dare them to get to the lane and finish through traffic, and they just can't do it. And I think we get to a playoff series and teams are going to play it almost gimmicky style defense that will work because Denver doesn't have the pieces to make take advantage of that. Yeah, and, and to your point about um, you know the Sixers having more playoff upside than uh, Utah over the last couple of years, I definitely agree with that, in part because that Embiid, Harden, pick and roll just yeah. might be unsolvable for a lot of teams out there. Yep. Um, and they can rely on that and go back to that and pound it, pound it, pound it until they win four games. Right. And the I, it, I love how this era has been challenging a lot of my evaluations and assumptions and the idea that what I thought was, you know, I, I, I was really big on rim protection. We've talked about how that how that's a frontier that's shifting a little bit. But the idea of just as a core concept can you defend a, and, and I love what Adam brought up earlier with Jokic about two-man actions. And, and part of the reason why you want a two-man action instead of a one-on-one is because the idea of the second person is that you're creating an advantage for one or the other. You're forcing defenders to make choices. Is that if you can't defend an act, a two-man action with two players, you're going to run into problems. And I, I brought this up with teams facing the Mavericks a lot, where if you have to bring a third person in, these elite talents, whether we're talking Jokic or we're talking Luka or we're talking Steph Curry or any number of other guys around the league, is that they will notice that and they will find the they will find the scene. And with Jokic and with, with Jokic and some of their players at times, but also we talked about their other weaknesses, but especially with Embiid and Harden, it might not be doable. Like you might not be able to defend that two on two. And sometimes those passes are going to be hard to figure out and everything else, but it, it can be that simple sometimes. Yeah. 
I don't know. I don't really have anything anything on top of that to add, other you know than what I other you know said earlier about those two man games. But I do want to make one point though, because I know we're kind of rearing the nearing the end here about um, something I noticed in the Jokic and Bead game, and something that I noticed in the Bucks seventy sixers game this last time. That this is going to sound like a slight. Anytime I say something about a play about Embiid, you know, about an area where he has some more growth to do, it it just sounds like it's coming from this criticism. Like he's great. If he won the MVP, I would. I more more than worthy of winning it. When I watch the Nuggets game and I watched this last one, I felt like there was a little bit of almost a Wilt Russell thing going on. If you remember that game, Derek, Hubie Brown's calling it. And he keeps saying, why is Jokic playing off him so much? He's got to get closer. He's got to run him out. I think there was a little method to this madness in the strategy here, which was they needed to avoid foul trouble at all costs. Like Jokic had to get out of that game, get into the second half and into the fourth quarter without fouling. And Embiid was on fire with his jumper. And I think there was a lot of like resignation to like, hey, if he's going to win with jumpers, you can get it. And I think that Embiid probably should have recognized that the most important thing I can do is force Jokic to defend, first of all, like make him work and maybe just draw enough fouls that his defense changes. Because in the second half, when Denver started to take the lead and come back, you start crowding Embiid's space a little bit more. You start you start pushing things here. And Jokic got out of that game with one foul. Yeah. I, I just think that there's a little and the same thing goes for Giannis. If you look in that game, Giannis was so willing to do the thing that would have led Sports Center for him screwing it up, pulling pulling up jumpers, risking getting postered by flying across and trying to block shots and this or that. And to me, it's the one thing I could say about Embiid is I think there's there's a game within a game that players start to realize. And I think that in both of those, he kind of missed it just a little bit in the key moments about, hey, what's actually important here? And do I need to risk looking really bad in order to do the thing that actually that's actually going to be most valuable in the final five minutes? It's a soft criticism, but it's, it's it's just something I think he still is he can solve. Yeah, I mean you're you're going back to that game. I think Embiid had like 36 on like 20 shots or something. Like that. He was really in a oh, rhythm made a, from the mid range. You're right. You could have put a little more pressure on Jokic, get him out of the game, or at least get him to the point where he's not comfortable defending. Um, you know, really defending because he's worried about the foul trouble. Um, you know, but I mean that game. I, I do think at times we take these individual matchups, especially if we're going to relate it to MVP conversations. I don't think these two games should really have any real bearing on MVP MVP conversations because I agree. George Yang goes, you know, four for 10 instead of two for 10 from three. We're not having this conversation. Um, but and to that point, like if I mean, and look, Giannis was incredible on Tuesday. But if Joel Embiid's being defended by Tobias Harris and Paul Millsap, like he's probably right. going for 40 as well. Um, so there's I do think we put a little too much on these two games. Um, this will become a much more interesting conversation in the playoffs when each game really is do or die. Um, but yeah, look, Embiid is still, I think, trying to figure out exactly how. And for the most part, he's real good at putting pressure on on defense on, on his um, big man to get in foul trouble. Uh, but he definitely could have pushed that issue a little bit more for sure. Uh, where I want to end on this is on on a very different note. I want to give I want each of you to pick two things. One is one player, whether it's a star or somebody else that you're watching intently the rest of this season plus playoffs, or somebody that you find interesting that you want to know more about and then the second one is you cannot pick a series involving the team that you cover most closely but if you can if you could will one playoff series in any round to happen the series that you most want to see in the entire playoffs we'll start with adam see that's not fair though because i really do want to see sixers nets in part look i don't expect ben simmons to play but there's so much bad blood between those two teams and you have it and beat and durant having many beefs fine one um, series other than sixers nets yeah yeah, no i okay go ahead you can go first i'll think I know this is a tough one. I'll tell you what, some of the bite out of the Eastern Conference has been taken out with this Robert Williams news because yeah. I was really excited for him and, and for that team because they're, they're, they were so interesting. I, they're just a little bit less interesting now. Um, 
Man, this is a tough one. I think you'd like to, for me, I'd probably like to see Brooklyn, Milwaukee. It was such a good series last year. I think that when you talk about MVP, it's separate from best player. And I still think best player is probably Giannis and, and KD. Like to me that, and so I just want to see that matchup again. Um, I think it'll be great. If I went to the other conference, I'm so interested in Memphis. I don't know if I would say Memphis Phoenix, but those two teams to me, I think we're sleeping on just how good they are. Like Memphis is really good. Memphis knows who they are. They do a lot of things. Well, we talk about this versatility thing, like they can do a lot of things. So part of me wants to see that series. And a lot of that has to do with golden state. Doesn't look good. Denver. I know is so limited. Utah looks terrible. Um, so I guess those would be my two series. What was the other question you wanted uh, to a answer? Play, a player oh. that you're interested in watching, like that, that you're keeping a focus on the rest of the year. You're meaning regular season yeah, plus yeah. playoffs. So it's like somebody who intrigues you. Man, this is a bit of a cop out. If I had more time here, I'd probably think about this a little bit more thoroughly. But I'll, I'm going to say Carl Anthony Towns. Yeah, he's a, he's had a really big. I mean, this has been a big year for him. I feel like the stuff I'm talking about, Derek, about sort of the, the all these players. The game is so good; it becomes such a mental game that now it almost becomes the game within the game. Towns is a player that's far from mastering that aspect of it, but I think he was a zero on yeah. that as recently as two or three years ago, and I think he's probably a five now. And that's a large probably his skill level was already good enough to be the best center you know skill wise he's so talented but i think he's starting to piece together some of these other aspects of it and um so I, he's so talented that if you told me they had played Memphis in the first round, are we sure that's a Memphis win? It's probably 80-20. But, like, Towns is really good, and I want to see if he's good enough to have, like, one or two great games that, that wins a playoff game you weren't supposed to. He might be. Yeah, I think I think Towns is the right answer for that. Um, I think that is exactly where my mind was going, in part because, you know, he had, like, a three- or four-year stretch where everyone was like, well, he might be the most talented scoring big man in the history of sport, but he might not, you know, he can't figure out the rest of the game enough. And now he's slowly, not even really slowly, pretty quickly this year yeah. figuring out some of those aspects i want to see what that means in the playoffs i want to see what that means um yeah. you know whether or not he can do that at a, a higher stage and against higher competition i think he's the right answer for that question um in terms of the matchup um you know i think i think bucks nets could be fascinating um just because you've got maybe the best team in the east against the most dangerous or most unpredictable team in east uh, i want to see how that plays out um <laughs> I love how nobody knows what to say about Brooklyn. <laughs> the, they might be the funniest super team well, of all time. They have a like I think they still have like a plus eleven net rating when Grant <laughs> and Irving are both on the floor, and they very well could lose in the playoff tournament. It's totally it's it's, it, it's wild. Um, I I will I will echo that series. I think that's I think I think that's great. I'm gonna add two more players that I'm I'm really thinking about over the next couple weeks, and neither of them, especially after something that we just mentioned, is going to happen or might not have the longest playoff runs. But Evan Mobley. And Jason Tatum. Good, so Mobley, we haven't seen a young big this good defensively in a long time. And I don't think the Cavs are that threatening in the playoffs, especially if Jared Allen isn't right. But it's a different crucible. How does he look offensively, which his offensive game has actually grown a lot over the course of the year? How does he look defensively against whatever really good team they're facing? Because we know they're facing a good team. We just don't know which one it is. Yeah. And with Jason Tatum, he's had strong playoff runs before. He's had weak playoff runs before. And I, I'm definitely down on the Celtics like East winning odds and championship winning odds. Now that Robert Williams is dealing with this meniscus surgery, my inclination is that he's not going to play the rest of the season plus playoffs. And that sucks. But 
Tatum can still show me something and and be like the question of whether he can be and will be the best player in a playoff series against a high level opponent yeah. is so important because like we're we're in this fascinating place now and I mean I, I was thinking back to a podcast Nate and I did like two years ago about we did a, we do a crystal ball and it's like where is the league going to be in two years and it, what we had talked about at that point was this weird transition where the best players were going to be older but still really good and the young players were maybe still going to be breaking out and then the question at that point was there weren't as many of those guys in the at that point 24 to 25 range because we weren't sure with Carl Anthony Towns what happened is Giannis and Bede Jokic just became monsters like that is over that course of time those guys have become best player on a championship team caliber but how who who those next guys are does Luca reach that level I mean maybe he was already there but the Clippers were just a monstrous matchup does Tatum get to that level Jalen Brown get there and like the do we see some of these young guys and just go oh damn that's where this is going yeah and you know my background before I started uh, covering the Sixers full-time was I was very involved in the NBA draft Um, so those young players developing and and getting to see what they have um, both development year to year but also development watching them sort of grow in the moment um give me as much mobley as much scotty barnes as you can this postseason i want to see what God, they can do because they've guys. been a great great draft class i, I love this, this these young players man I, I really do think it's a new era like the, the new generation already has a bit of a personality to it um and john morant might be the face of this young era like yep. you know you kind of break it down it's funny because luca's there too but luca almost feels more he almost even though he is part of that that draft class, he feels more like the middle draft, the, the Giannis era type of player. But this John Morant, like he's easily could have been the guy we named as the guy most interesting to watch right yeah. now, because are we sure he's not going to be the best player in the Western Conference playoffs? Like there's a chance he is. I am not That's sure. I'm I'm not sure at all that. He, I mean, John could do that. He's really good. And he has a great part of what makes him so hard to guard is it. You, they have so many good players, so many ways to beat you that you can't just focus your energy on him the way you can a Luca, for example. So um, I, I'm excited. Ja, this will be a really interesting playoff run for him. Or maybe it won't be. Maybe Toronto or uh, Minnesota will, will sneak up on him because they're also really good. I was, you know, we were talking about the playoff matchups and like I was, because, you know, we're getting a better sense now of where things break. We still have a little bit of time left. And I'm like, the idea that Memphis... Dallas is a potential second round series and that one of those teams would then make the conference finals is really interesting. And this would not be a circumstance like the Portland Trailblazers a couple of years ago where it's just, oh, all the good teams are on the other side. Memphis is a damn good basketball team oh, and yeah. they're only going to get better with time. I just wrote about them extensively at The Athletic. And the opportunity for those teams, even if and I'm not foreclosing any doors on the Grizzlies of maybe and, and the Mavericks. Maybe it's not winning a championship this year, but taking real steps forward and building on that and and getting momentum and and going and, and having strong features is there. There are basically no other than the, some of the stuff with injuries. There, there, all of these are just exciting. And it's like you like bring up different ones. Like oh, well, Heat Bucks. Like that would be wild too. Like that. Well, I've said a couple weeks ago that was the series I most wanted to see. Yeah, I think that one might be a smackdown. I'm. I'm I'm a, I'm a heat truther at the moment, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm getting there, too, for the record. Can I, can I tell you one team, though, that I think is – and it's so funny. This is my hottest take, I think, about the playoffs. I think the Clippers are a lot better than people realize. And they just lost five in a row. They won one of their last six. 
this Clippers team is built for the playoffs. Some of the losing that they've done has been, I think, a somewhat deliberate. Like the way they guarded Denver is they in, Ty Lue invented. I talked to earlier about there's a way to guard Denver to really make them fresh. Ty Lue invented that defense. And after they started, they played Denver twice again in a row. After that, every team started guarding Denver that way. And it, I, I just think that they are a team that is super versatile, really smart, and they're starting to get some of these pieces back that poor Memphis. If you look at Denver, Golden State, Utah, that's the soft spot of the playoffs for the Western Conference. The tough part, Minnesota, Clippers, you know, Phoenix, Memphis, they might all wind up on the same side of the bracket. And those teams are in a lot of ways more dynamic and more scary to me. Well, I, I know the three of us could find different topics to go at for, for another hour and a half if we wanted to. But I'm going to thank you both for taking the time. That was so much fun. Thanks so much, Danny. Good talking to you, Derek. Thanks again to Derek Bodner and Adam Maris for taking the time to come on. You can and should subscribe to Derek Bodner's Daily Six newsletter. You can check that out at daily6dailysix.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA. And then Adam Maris is doing the exciting and expanding DNVR, DNVR underscore sports there. And they also have a Phoenix outpost and a Chicago one now. It's super cool concept. I'm so happy that it's going well. And you can listen to the DNVR Nuggets podcast that he does. Also talk to, as he mentioned on the show, the, the work that he does with George Carl is so cool. And if you don't already, you can follow Adam on Twitter at A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. Loved having the both on, and the conversation went in so many fascinating directions and thinking about the future of the league and, and where all this is going, and I love that. I truly do, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That is extremely important, whatever podcast player you use, because the show is going to come out at different times and that helps you find it. It'll just pop into your podcast player. You can also leave a rating, leave a review in whatever podcast player or spread the word through social media. Say, hey, this episode, this podcast in general, things that people might like, and that helps new listeners find the show. And I really do appreciate that. But the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsor. For us, that is betonline.ag. Use that CLNS5 zero code to get a 50% welcome bonus and to tell them that you came from us. So hopefully they will continue to support Real GM Radio. I really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other endeavors, Nate Duncan and I going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, typically one public episode a week, and then Dunked On Prime covers the rest, and we do a mix of gamers, and we've been doing position rankings a lot recently and setting up the playoffs, and of course we'll do a ton of great postseason content once we get there. Nate and I also have our last NBA strategy stream of the year that will be on Tuesday this week because there are no games on Monday and we're going to be doing Grizzlies Jazz should be super fun and that's a I believe it's a nine eastern six pacific start so we'll be doing that and then we will be doing live broadcasts throughout the playoffs but we're figuring out the frequency and all that type of stuff it's still still in the works of course and we also do Spotify. You can check that out Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific. That's like a call-in radio show is the way that I like to think about it. And you can call in or you can be in the discussion section or now, thankfully, you can listen after the fact that's on Spotify. We'll share all those links regularly, of course. You can also check out my work at The Athletic. I mentioned during the pod the piece that I wrote on the Memphis Grizzlies that came out on Wednesday. You can check that out. I'll be writing reasonably frequently when I get inspiration, but I have a couple pieces in the works already 
already, so that's always good. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise I will reply if I can. I'm not the greatest at that, but I do read it, and that's why I'm very open about what I do, and if that's something that so moves you, and I do get stuff a fair amount, and I really do appreciate that. And that is enough for now, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day.